This is from The Cloud of Unknowing. The author is anonymous. See that nothing remains in your conscious mind save a naked intent of stretching out toward God. Leave it stripped of every particular idea about God. What is he like in himself or in his works? And keep only the simple awareness that he is as he is. Let him be thus, I pray you, and force him not to be otherwise. Search into him no further, but rest in this faith as on solid ground. This awareness, stripped of ideas and deliberately bound and anchored in faith, shall leave your thought and affection in emptiness, except for the naked thought and the blind feeling of your own being that it will feel as if your whole desire cried out to God and said, that which I am to offer you, O Lord, without looking to any quality of your being, but only to the fact that you are as you are, this and nothing more. Let that quiet darkness be your whole mind and like a mirror to you. For I want your thought of self to be as naked and as simple as your thought of God, so that you may be spiritually united with him without any fragmentation or scattering of your mind. He is in your your being and in him. You are what you are not only because he is the cause and being of all that exists, but because he is your cause and the deep center of your being. Jane? So we're continuing a series here on the nature of personal transformation. And each of these messages is a podcast. And uh, if you'd like to hear the other messages, then there are some uh, red little cards at the back of the church. You can find out how to link into those uh, messages on your iPhone or or any other device. And you can hear those other messages there. Um, A couple of weeks ago, I was talking about the universal mind. The word mind itself comes from the old English word gemit, which means memory or thought. So the idea that we have, you know, is that we have our rational minds and memory and thought is what characterizes that. We have our body minds. There is the planetary mind Each of these has its own memory. Its body has its memory. It remembers how to beat your heart, remembers how to breathe. The planetary mind remembers how to sort of send the weather and all that sort of business. And, you know, everything has its own mind. The seeds have their own little minds that enable, remind them how to germinate and all that sort of business. And then we have the universal mind. The universal mind. And that is the mind of personal transformation. It's the mind that Paul talks about in Romans 12. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, 
You know, there was the mind of this world. But be transformed by the renewing of your minds. He's talking about connecting with the universal mind. And when we do that, we become part of the loving nature of the universe. When we connect with the universal mind, we become part of the loving nature of the universe. As Hazrat Inyat Khan uh, observes in his book, The Heart of Sufism, he says, in that condition, you know, when you are part of that universal mind, in that condition, each person becomes for the time as a drop that is assimilated or submerged in its origin. And being submerged for one moment means that all that belongs to the origin, the universal mind, is attracted by this drop because the origin is the essence of all. The drop has taken from its origin everything it has in life. It is newly charged and become illumined again. And when you connect with the universal mind, that's what happens. That wisdom, that, that, that memory of the universe becomes available to us. But you know, our rational minds are so impatient, so impatty, unwilling to suffer, patty to suffer. Im, impatient means literally unwilling to suffer. That we're always pulling away from the universal mind and we're always going into our own rational minds. And that's because we're always wanting our experience to be different. We're always wanting, you know, to change what we're feeling. We want to change what we're thinking. We're hardly ever willing just to have it. You know, there are times maybe in sex, maybe, you know, in in an idea of ecstatic experience, oh, I'll go with this. You know, but a lot of the time we're standing in the grocery queue and we just want to change to the next aisle, you know. We're like, That's a better queue, I'll get in that queue. We're always just wanting to alter it. Generally, we're wanting to interfere with what's going on, to try and make things better or to be different. Which is what that line in the Lord's Prayer is against. You know, let us not be led into temptation. What that actually means is, That temptation is the temptation to fiddle about with what we're thinking and feeling. The temptation to tinker with life and make it go the way that we want it to go. Are there any sailors here? Quite a few, yeah. In Aspen. You know, lots of... (laughs) Anyway, in a sailing race, what is the biggest no-no? Well, in my experience, yeah, I've only been in a few sailing races. The biggest no-no in a sailing race is to turn your engine on. <laughs> I'm in a sailing race, and the captain says, he's got his engine on, I'm sure of it over there, you know, as he's just sailing against the wind, happily with his, you know, all the sheets are flaming, and he's going fast. Yeah, that is the biggest no-no, turn your engine on. And you know, the same is true of our experience. We're always wanting to turn our engine on and to change it, to change the position we're in. Or the person we're with. You know, want to change the person with. Or the conversation that we are having. The way, you know, this or that is going. When we don't like something in our lives, we want to change it. And that takes us out of our universal mind. We're no longer willing just to be with whatever comes along. And we do that because we think we can make our experience better. That's why we think we can make it better. 
We can self-medicate in one way or another to make life more bearable. You know, we think we know the terrain, and we use the engines of our minds to steer us through that terrain. Which is my, why Meister Eckhart's description of the meditative experience is the perfect stance. So in that description, we give up trying to know. We give up trying to get our own way. In fact, go into Meister Eckhart's meditative stance. To go into that, he says that what we should do in, our, in meditation is we should get to a point where we want for nothing. We realize that in our lives we want for nothing in that meditation. And it's true. When you're in meditation, you want for nothing. There's nothing to do. You know, you, you, there's nothing to change. You want for nothing. Therefore, there's nothing to will. Wanting nothing, willing nothing. And then the last part of that is knowing nothing. Wanting nothing, willing nothing, knowing nothing. And that state puts us in contact with the universal mind because it gets us out of the way. That's what it does. It gets us out of the way. And we have to get out of the way to let that mind come through. In meditation, there is just the isness of the present moment. That's all there is. So there's nothing to do. Wanting for nothing, willing nothing. And then the real cruncher. And that's the theme for today. Knowing nothing. And how difficult it is to know nothing. Even to admit to not knowing is a problem in today's world. You know, in those old days of maps, when you were driving along with maps, you know, with your wife by your side, men would prefer not to admit that they're lost. Yeah, they prefer just to carry on in the wrong direction rather than admit that actually I'm lost, could you help me? You know, they would go in that wrong direction. No one likes to admit that they're lost in any situation. But we are, all of us, utterly lost. You know, we conspire with each other to think that we know what we're about. But in reality... You know, we're like that person on the service sheet, that picture. We can only see, we can only see as far as we can see. And we block out the rest. We can only see as far as we can see. We block it out. You know, how we came to be born, what happens when we die, how life works, what is the purpose of life, how to deal with gun laws. They're all out there totally not knowing what to do about it. All the bits that we don't know about, we make up. And you know, that's one of the purposes of religion. To make up bits to make us feel better about what we don't understand. Reincarnation, heaven, hell, God. Who really knows? Nobody. Even the Dalai Lama Peace be upon him. You know, he was asked, you know, what would you do if someone conclusively proved to you that reincarnation didn't exist? And he said, I would change my views accordingly. Yeah, we, we, don't, we really don't know. And in meditation, we have to arrive at the point where we give up trying to think that we know. In The Cloud of Unknowing, which was written in the 14th century, would you believe? The Cloud of Unknowing, he says, during meditation, All created things and their works must be buried beneath the cloud of forgetting. 
All created things are buried beneath the, cl the cloud of forgetting. If you wish to enter into this cloud and be at home in it and take out meditative work of love, I urge you there is something else you must do. Just as the cloud of unknowing lies above you between you and God, you know, you don't know what's going on, you must fashion a cloud of forgetting between you and everything else. The cloud of unknowing will perhaps leave you with a feeling that you are far from God. But no, it is authentic. Only the absence of the cloud of forgetting keeps you from him now. Unless you could be between the cloud of unknowing and the cloud of forgetting, you know, that is what keeps you in that place where you can connect with God. So for the purposes of meditation, it's important to enter into it with the idea of admitting that we don't know what we're dealing with. We go into it not knowing. You know, there have been so many ideas about what God is. You know, the great chariot that goes across the sky, you know, then there was the sort of, you know, there was all the Norse gods, and then there was the old man in the sky, and then Jesus came along, so we had a young man in the sky. You know, all those ideas of God, forgetting even that we are part of the universal mind. All one consciousness. In fact, you know, everything I'm saying now is just the latest version of what people think God is. It has changed all the way through history. You have to forget it all. You have to forget it all. All those ideas we have about who we are and about what we're part of has to be left behind. And in its place, we have to accept the present moment for what it is. We have to accept the present moment for what it is. Our breath, the thoughts that go by, the feeling in our body, the sounds and any sights, <clears throat> that's all we have. The rest is made up. The rest is that idealized, fabricated reality that we think of as our advanced self. What we've made up the most comfortable way we can think of it. Even all the stuff I talk about here, you know, it's just made up. You know, it's, just, it's just as, you know, we think, oh, it's so old-fashioned, you know, the old gods of the skies. You know, this is just the modern version of that. You know, in about a hundred, two, three, four hundred years' time, they'll have a completely different one. You know, oh, that universal mind stuff's all rubbish. You know, of course they didn't know in those days. You know, you just have this, you do your best you can just to give yourself a context, but really you've, you do your best you can to give yourself the context to not know. That idealized, fabricated reality that we all think of as our advanced self. And it sounds harsh, but it is dealing with reality as it actually is. And that enables us to give ourselves fully to the present moment, into the universe of which we're a part, but of whose being we know nothing. And we engage in that as an act of love. It is an act of love with, with the universe, with all that is. We are giving our full presence with no expectation of return, just loving the reality of which we're a part on the understanding that love is the center of the wheel, even if we cannot see the spokes and the circumference of that wheel. We act out of our understanding that love is the greatest contribution we can make, and that our purpose in life is to make that contribution, even if we don't know what the effect is. And, you know, 
I'm not rubbishing the mind. Our rational minds bring us to that point of that understanding of that love. It's an advanced state to know that the center of that wheel is love. You have to get to that point. Otherwise, you're just fighting the spokes. You're like, you know, Don, what's his name? Don Quixote. He's just like tilting with windmills. That's why it's so powerful, that story. Because you're just literally tilting with windmills all the time until you realize that it is essence, the essence of love is at the center of it. So we sit in meditation, wanting for nothing, willing nothing, and knowing nothing. And that is our practice. And as we sit, we just, we just don't engage with the ideas about God. We just don't engage with the ideas about all the thoughts and things. All we do is give of ourselves in love. And, and that is, that's our practice. I'm going to talk about this more next week, but that is our practice. Our practice for what? It's our practice for living. Because although it seems that our practice, our practice and our daily life are worlds apart, you know, you practice sitting there on your cushion and stuff like that, and then you're down in Clark's Market, you know, how could we, couldn't be more different. Our practice and our daily life seem to be worlds apart. In fact, our practice is really our practicing the way that life has set us up for living. Because just as in meditation, the true path in life, the true path in life is the path where we actually realize that we want for nothing. That our circumstances are perfect for our life development. That they are actually leading us to whatever is going to happen next. That the universe is calling to us through our circumstances The universe is calling to us through our circumstances. And we're we're invited not to fight with the circumstances like Don Quixote and the windmills, but we're invited to see through that and deal at the deeper level. Not to say that we shouldn't put effort into what we do. This isn't about resignation. You know, I'm going to put everything into the effort of what I do, but just, you know, as they say in the Tao Te Ching, you know, do your work, step back, there is the path to serenity. You know, we often don't feel we're in the right place. I've got a load of old stories I'm going to repeat now. But, you know, that old story about the farmer, the two tourists were coming up to the farmer and, and the, the, you know, says, well, how do I get to Glenwood Springs from, you know, from here? And the farmer looks at him, sucks at his pipe and says, well, if I was going to Glenwood Springs, I wouldn't want to be starting from here. And we feel about that in our lives, you know. We feel that this is, I'm not in the ideal place, so we want to change where we're at. You know, we think we'd have a better life, you know. And it's like, you know, a hand of poker. I, I've said this, I'm just repeating myself. Really. It's like we have a hand of poker and we're given a pair of fives. And we think that's, you know, that's just, it's just not going to work. You know, look at the skills that I've got, none. In our lives, we feel often like we've been given a pair of fives. But what we don't realise is that because we're connected to the universal mind, the game is fixed and that pair of fives is a winning hand because you're playing it and you've been given it to play it. It is absolutely perfect. Our life is our life. Our troubles are the grist we have for our mill. But the problem is we're always trying to change our lives, to throw in our hands and get someone else's hand, change our relationships, change our jobs, change our houses, change our wives, change our husbands, change in the line in the grocery store. The first part of all of that is the acceptance of our lives and the willingness to fully engage and not be attached to the outcomes 
of our actions. Wanting for nothing, willing nothing, and knowing nothing. But we also have, we also have to be open to knowing nothing, not prejudging circumstances or situations. You know, not thinking that we know how they're going to turn out. Now, who has not heard my story of the Chinese farmer? Just put the hands up. There's just about enough to be said. Yeah, I'm going to tell this story now. Because <laughs> it's worth it's just worth reminding. I think the rest of you could just play like, you know, when you're a member of a community like this, after five years, you're going to hear a lot of stories. And I expect you to laugh at the end of the ones that are funny. And <laughs> this, isn't, this isn't a laughing. This isn't a laughing at the end of one. Chi- Chinese story, Chang, the Chinese farmer, has, he has one, uh, one son and one horse. And he gets up in the morning, looks out into the paddock, and his horse is gone. His one horse that he needs for everything is gone and has gone up into the mountains. Of course, all his friends come round to gloat. His friends come round and say, Chang, your one horse. What bad news. What bad luck. And Chang goes, good luck, bad luck, who knows. Anyway, a week later, the horse comes back. Chang goes up in the morning. The horse is back in the paddock with 10 other horses that have come down from the mountains and are all in the paddock together. And, you know, all these uh, friends come round again. You know, they're marvelling. In fact, Chang has now got 11 horses. Chang, what good luck? Chang says, good luck, bad luck, who knows? Because a week later, Chang's son wants to break these horses in so he can make some money out of it. So he gets up, gets one of the horses. You can guess what happens. He's thrown off the horse, breaks his leg terribly badly, you know, he's crippled, and, uh, and yet they have to call the doctor. All his friends come round again. Oh, Chang, oh, bad luck, you know. Chang says, good luck, bad luck, who knows. Because the next month, the uh, local area declares war. The general declares war on the next uh, uh, area, and the soldiers come round to pick up all the young men from the village. And they pick up everybody except Chang's son because he can't go to war because he's broken his leg. We never know what circumstances in our lives are going to lead us to what. We think we do. Oh, this is terrible, I'm having to move house. This is terrible, I'm this. But we don't know what's going to happen next. The truth is we don't know where any of it will lead us. We think we know when something is good or bad. And we try to steer ourselves to what we think is good and what we think is bad. But the truth is, actually, we don't know. We don't know what is good or bad, which you don't know what is good or evil. And, you know, I always think it's amazing. The one fruit that Adam and Eve were told not to eat was the tree of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. The apple came from the tree of the knowledge, the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. In other words, what is being said in that Genesis bit, whoever wrote that, is saying, look, it is the one thing you mustn't do is to judge what is good and what is evil. That enables you to stay in a place of innocence. You can be naked. You don't have to worry because you're not trying to decide what's good and what's evil. By not knowing, we suddenly become centered on what's actually going on. What's important? Suddenly we don't have our eyes fixed on the future. Suddenly we have our eyes fixed on what we're doing for the sake of doing it. And at that moment we come in touch with who we really are and what we're really doing. 
in the moment we're actually doing it. Suddenly we come into that new place. You're still conscious of what is going on, but you are conscious of what is going on right now. You're still paying the rent. You're still putting dinner on the table. But part of you realizes that no matter what you're doing, there are other forces at play. No matter what you're doing, there are other forces at play. Literally, there's the weather of our lives. And we stay in the center of that weather. We stay at the point where we remain in touch with the universal mind, letting go of our preoccupations with circumstances. We notice our fears, and we just let them go and come back into the present. It's so difficult not to know in our lives. It's easier in meditation because you just, you know, you're in your breath and nothing's going to happen. You've got your ideas and you can let them go. And, as you know, there's a limited amount of stuff that can happen in meditation. But in life, in life we value knowing in order to be able to order it. Knowing helps us get about. So what's the use of not knowing? Well, the value of not knowing is that we realize all the things that we don't know. The things that we've learned from life, we start, the value of not knowing is we realize all the things that we do know. We realize all the things that we do know, all the things that we've learned from life, and then we don't project forward to what we cannot know. So you keep, you keep the stuff that you do know. There's no point in letting go of that. We're, we're here because of that. You know, someone's been able to build this chapel because of what they've learned. We keep all that, but we don't project forward to what we cannot know. And most of the time in our lives, we're trying to see how we can have the greatest effect. How do I get that job? How do I make that success? When you adopt the attitude of not knowing, none of that matters. Some of you may have heard that I've had a book out recently. You know... Do I, you know, try and get on the speaker survey? Do I, do I try and become like Deepak Chopra or Adya Shanti, become a spiritual player on the spiritual teaching scene? Who's to say, though, that will be any better than me staying here, focusing on my practice, working with everybody in the, in the local community, deepening the way that I live my life? Who is to say that that is any better or worse than anything else? We make a judgment of what we think is a great thing, but actually it may be that just the deepening of my life is what's important. We just don't know. To accept what we don't know means that we can relax into our lives. We can relax into our lives and deepen our way of living. It's one of the reasons we've asked Matthew Fox to come. If you look at the subject that we're asking him to speak on, it's deeper ways of living. Because we're always trying to second-guess the universe, and as a result, we're worried about what we're doing. Your role in life might be just to do what you're doing right now and not to try and achieve anything else. Do you know what Van Gogh Emily Dickinson, Franz Kafka, Galileo, and Keats all had in common. They were only recognized after their deaths. 
They struggled all their lives. Emily Dickinson lived in a cupboard virtually all her life. You know, Van Gogh had no money at all. And in the end, no one said, wow, what a success you are, you know. They just died, not knowing, you know, the effect they had. But they were true to who they were. No matter what, they just kept painting. They just kept writing. They just kept on going. And after their deaths, boom. We just don't know the effect that we're having just by doing what we do to the best of our abilities and not worrying about the rest. You know, look at the author of The Cloud of Unknowing. I bet he didn't think when he wrote it in the 1300s that we'd still be reading it 800 years later. He read it to his spiritual friend. And here we are, 800 years later, still reading that book. Doing our simple thing might just be what we're asked to do by the universe. And it might be what we're being called to do. That really does, you know, it it takes the pressure off. Notice some of you thinking, when's he going to stop? (laughs) See, we need to change it, you know. I I can go on to 11, if that's okay. (laughs) You know, notice the desire to change. You don't have to worry about succeeding. You work through the problems that come to you rather than thinking that you're doing something wrong because you've got problems. You work through the problems that come to you rather than thinking you're doing something wrong because you've got problems. You don't try and second-guess the grocery lines because all this stuff out there is just a distraction. You know, in Buddhism and Hinduism, they... And those cultures, they refer to it as an illusion. But I think for me, it's more of a distraction. We're distracted by what's out there. We, we try to control and manipulate it. When the real role is actually to develop our loving connection with the universal mind. That's our purpose in life. To develop a loving connection with the universal mind and allow that mind to act through us. And to do what we have to do and not know what's going to happen. You must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Our role is to connect with the universe at the deeper level, not to worry about which school our children are getting into, how big our house is, what will bring us success, what will bring us health. Fine, do your best, but know that the game is deeper than that. And play it, To play it, you have to be unattached to what happens. To play the game of life, you have to be unattached to what happens. The universal mind comes to us in the circumstances of our lives, and the game is not to deal with the circumstances, but to open to that mind and allow it to show us how to respond in a way that is deep and loving to all. The old analogy, that that the spiritual life is like a swimming pool. All the noise comes from the shallow end. So in our practice, we practice not knowing and simply loving so that in our lives, we can act out of our not knowing and therefore be simply loving. Let's pray.
So in our prayer, we offer our heart and our will into the universe, not knowing the effect, but having the compatio, the willingness to suffer with, the compassion to be with those who are suffering. And we do think of those suffering at the moment. Those without food, without shelter. Think of war zones. People in prison. Angry. Feeling they have no way of dealing with their lives. Helpless. Unjust regimes. We pray for compatio in our rulers and our leaders. Willingness to suffer with compassion, a sense of love, engagement on that level. We pray that we may be worthy of living our lives in a life of love. We pray for people in our community. Particularly pray today for the Coffee family especially Sam, who's in Mexico and has had multiple strokes at a very young age, two surgeries, family very worried, Kathy and the family very worried, and ask for our prayers for Sam. Also praying for family of Rita Travis, Andrew Travis, mother who died last night. Continue to pray for the family of Tyler Ribich, family of Gene Yates. Pray for the family of Borkild Haran, Eva Lemna's mother, uh, who gave the flowers that we have in our service today in, in memory after their memorial for Borkild yesterday. Pray for Chris Faison's family, the memorial today. Pray for Dan and Judy Leffler, for John Catto about to have back surgery, for Cody Horn who's recovering from back surgery, from George Brewster who's CP's brother who's struggling with cancer. Continue praying for Mimi Schlumberger, who I know watches and listens. Mimi, we send you our love. Cindy Van de Veer, for Taylor Patterson, and for Helen Gotchi. Pray that healing power of the universe goes towards all these people. Amen.